Back in the summer of 2018, there was an incident that divided murderinos. That's what the fans of the podcast My Favorite Murder call themselves. The true crime comedy podcast had posted some new merch, including a t-shirt with a TP on it. Under it had the letters SSDGM, which stands for the show's slogan, Stay Sexy, Don't Get Murdered. Some murderinos called out what they saw as problematic appropriation of a Native American symbol. Others thought it was an overreaction, an appreciation for nostalgic summer camps of years past. In Facebook groups and Reddit, it got heated. The hosts of My Favorite Murder, Karen Kilgriff and Georgia Hardstark, have been open about owning their biases on the show. After Bitch Media published a critique the year before in 2017, Karen and Georgia addressed the issues surrounding how they talk about certain topics, like sex work, LGBTQ people, and race head-on. We'll always read emails and letters from people who are like, here's what you did. Like, even using the term sex workers, if you listen from the beginning, we didn't say that. We said prostitutes. Right. Because we didn't know. We didn't know. As soon as we find out, we correct ourselves and admit that, not admit, we say we did something wrong. Here's an email from someone who is teaching us, I did it, is telling us the correct, the correct way to do it because they understand that we want to learn. But what surprised some murderinos was how long it took for the course correction after the TP debacle. It took two months for the shirt to be removed. Karen and Georgia ultimately pledged $10,000 to a First Nations charity. And listen, there is no shame in listening to my favorite murder or similar shows like Crime Junkie or Morbid. There's actually some catharsis that happens while listening to these podcasts, especially for people who have experienced violence. They feel less alone. Georgia herself has acknowledged that she created the show to help soothe her own anxieties around violence. My best friend from high school died in a car accident. Don't drink and drive, you guys. That's horrible. I know. So, like, I'm just fucking want to hear all about it. And I'm also I'm also big on, like, anything could happen at any moment and you'll never know about it. Like, I don't sit near a window at a restaurant because I'm like, a car is going to come careening through the fucking window and kill me. Sure. So that shit to me is like, tell me everything so I can avoid it. (laughs) But we have to acknowledge what those shows have in common. They're hosted by white women and largely focus on white victims. And that white lens, well, it impacts how they view violent crime, policing, and what justice looks like. And that's what this episode is about. What happens when those voices and those stories are the loudest in the room? From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Mariah Smith, and this is Spectacle True Crime. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, 
And this is the price of paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow the price of paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. A few years back, P.E. Moskowitz was walking through the streets of New York City and did what many of us do, scrolled through their phone and turned on a podcast. But not just any podcast, a murder podcast. They realized that it wasn't a one-off reflex. It had become an obsession. Almost every podcast they listened to was true crime. Found them, like, strangely cathartic and relaxing, which sounds perverse to say, but uh, I realized that that was kind of common. And as someone who is, like, pretty against the police state and the way that people are treated by the police and the kind of fear-mongering that goes on about crime and everything, it felt very contradictory to me that I enjoyed this kind of stuff so much and then at the same time thought it was all, like, horrible and politically questionable, and I didn't really understand where that was coming from, so I thought I should explore that. P.E. wrote about this contradiction in Mother Jones. One of their favorite shows was the podcast Crime Junkie. Crime Junkie is two hosts, Ashley and Britt. They're kind of like two best buds who grew up together, and one is the main host, Ashley, and she kind of goes over the crime of the week in a very matter-of-fact way, just going through all the details and what different reports say and what the police said and all of that. And then I think Britt is kind of meant as the audience stand-in where uh, she's asking questions or just being like, wait, what? What does that mean? Or OMG, that's scary or something, you know. They thought the hosts handled topics with care. And there wasn't as much of that, like, kind of laughing as you talk about someone being brutally murdered thing. So that's the reason I like Dateline, too, is because there's none of that kind of weird laughter stuff going on. Crime Junkie's slogan is be weird, be rude, stay alive. Not super different from my favorite murders, stay sexy, don't get murdered. So a lot of the advice is like, don't be afraid to be weird, for example, which, you know, applies to normal life like Women are taught to be normal and not show their quirky side or whatever. And it also applies to if someone is approaching you and you feel unsafe, don't be afraid to like be weird or act out and run away or not play the kind of damsel in distress in that situation. Karen and Georgia also have catchy sayings like lock the damn door and stay out of the forest. To be fair, the victim-blaming aspect has been called out and the hosts are quick to give caveats. It's not whether I lock my damn door, it's whether why someone would want to come in my door and harm me. That's Lindsay Webb. She's an associate professor of law at the University of Denver Sturm College of Law. It's not that George Floyd shouldn't have left his house and gone to a convenience store, but it's why did the police kill him, right? It's the actions of the perpetrator and not of the person who's being perpetrated against should be the focus. Part of it is narrative. That's storytelling. It's compelling. It's what we have experienced in our own lives. We think, if only I hadn't just done whatever. Why did I leave five minutes late that day? Why, you know, how our lives can turn on a dime. But it's kind of a self-help approach to violence against women that ignores systemic issues. Saying, be careful, is a lot easier than sorting out how we got here in the first place. 
Do we want a society where women all learn how to lock their doors and not go on hikes, where people of color can't leave their home or go anywhere because they fear for their safety? Or do we want a society where we think about where is that violence coming from? Why is that violence being encouraged? How is it being perpetrated and by whom? And what can we do to intervene? In a weird way, it seems like the other side of the same coin as don't wear short skirts if you don't want attention. I think this is the kind of most nefarious part of true crime is that it presents itself as a progressive platform in a way. Like this is about women's empowerment and this is about, you know, acknowledging the dangers that there are to women. But at the same time, it is incredibly victim blamey. It's teaching us to always be on high alert and hyper vigilant about everything and individualizing all these societal problems where you feel like you're the problem if you're not controlling it or if you're not calling the cops fast enough or whatever. So I think it's really insidious the way that it presents itself as progressive but it's really this very backwards way of looking at politics and also just womanhood in general. One of the systemic issues this perspective ignores is how different groups of people interact with the police. P.E. noticed this on an episode of Crime Junkie about the 1992 murder of Lisa Ziegert. P.E. pointed out she fits the mold of many victims that get airtime on these shows. Young, conventionally attractive, and white. The co-hosts walk listeners through the case. Lisa was abducted from a gift shop where she worked. Apparently that day, the day she was abducted, a couple walked into the store and heard muffled yelling and what likely was Lisa having a scuffle with the intruder. The host said that the couple didn't investigate or call the police. They just walked out. Ashley and Britt were like, What? Listen, I I know, I... Couldn't believe it when I heard. And, you know, I'm sure they didn't think the worst. No one thinks the worst. Then comes the self-helpy stuff. We talk all day every day about personal safety and being your own advocate. But we have to also look out for one another. Like, we have to get out of our own heads and pay attention to what's going on around us. Like, do it for others in hopes that one day, if you ever need it, someone will do the same for you. Britt says this is a new crime junkie life rule. Pay attention and don't be afraid to say something. Then Ashley... Another life rule is it's okay to call the police. Is it? For who? To say it's okay to call the police, you're acknowledging you're coming from a specific perspective. For you, calling the police might be helpful. For a person of color, it might be dangerous. If we try to understand crime, if we try to understand victimhood, if we try to understand our system of punishment through a white-on-white crime lens where white women are centered, we don't understand it. We'll get into how this white-on-white lens was also prevalent on the ground this year at CrimeCon. That's next. You may have heard of the podcast Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald of Juicy Scoop with Heather McDonald. Now, I could tell you why you should be listening to my show, but my listeners wanted to write the ad for me, and here are some of the things they said. Not your regular Juicy podcast. Catch up on all the juicy topics from Hollywood and pop culture to true crime and beyond. Heather McDonald's Juicy Scoop always has great guests, 
great laughs, and great gossip. It's a comedian's take on the hottest headlines. Juicy Scoop is the pop culture news you want to hear. No BS, no filter, no filler. Raw, real, and in the moment. Throw in the hilarity of amazing comedians that you'll instantly be obsessed with, a juicy crime story, and a dash of normal life in L.A. moments, and you've got yourself an amazing week of Juicy Scoop. Two episodes every week, every Tuesday and Thursday. It will never let you down. As you've heard in previous episodes, our producer Joanna Clay traveled to Vegas this year to attend CrimeCon. CrimeCon is like the Super Bowl for true crime fanatics. Between panels, she'd go up to people and ask what got them into true crime. She found that catching them in line for merch was a safe bet. That's where she met Jennifer McLean. I got started with my favorite murder. I took myself on a date, Uh got dressed up, took an Uber downtown Portland, and went and saw them. And my girlfriend found CrimeCon this year. We had no idea it existed, so now we're here. In the same line, she met a woman who interned with the FBI profiling unit in the late 90s. Jennifer Thompson from Baltimore. Silence of the Lambs changed my life. When I saw that movie, I knew what I wanted to do. So yeah, I talked to a lot of ladies at CrimeCon, and I will say, CrimeCon was mostly white women. And reflecting back on what we've learned so far on the show, what I've learned so far on the show, on just how problematic true crime is, I realized that the convention itself was catering to that white perspective, whether they're aware of it or not. You know, that actually makes sense from what I know through you about CrimeCon and the panels and the experiences you've had and, like you said, working on Spectacle this season. But what exactly led you to this conclusion? (laughs) Yeah, so I mean, for example, that woman that you heard just a second ago, Jennifer Thompson, who was a lovely lady, you know, she was a big forensics geek, like really, really into it. And she mentioned when we were chatting that she was really excited to go to a panel with Dr. Henry Lee. And who is Dr. Henry Lee? Yes, for people who are not familiar, Dr. Henry Lee is kind of a a star in the forensic science world. If you watched the CBS special on JonBenet Ramsey a few years back, you would have seen him in it. And then when I was doing research on The Staircase for one of our previous episodes, I realized he was actually a forensics expert in the Michael Peterson trial as well. Okay, so I'm going to take a wild guess and assume he's a quack or maybe not that legit. Yeah, I mean, that's a safe assumption. If you Google him, you'll find he's worked on a lot of famous cases, but he's also gotten himself into some hot water. He worked on the Phil Spector case where the judge accused him of destroying some evidence. And like I was saying before, he actually was a blood spatter expert for the defense in the Michael Peterson trial. And I mean, we know about blood spatter analysis now, which, you know, it's pseudoscience. It's not, it's not legitimate or scientifically valid. And, you know, we're pointing this out because by giving Dr. Henry Lee a platform, you're giving junk science a platform. And junk science disproportionately affects marginalized people. Right. It's just ignorant to everything we know today. Like over 10 years ago, the National Academy of Sciences said forensic science, aside from DNA, didn't have a scientific basis. So by having someone like Dr. Henry Lee, but not including someone like Chris Fabricant of the Innocence Project, I think you're definitely catering to a specific audience and a 
very specific perspective on criminal justice. Well, I have a question then. Do you think Chris would ever go to CrimeCon? So it's funny you should ask that because I was curious if he knew about CrimeCon and he actually said that he keeps asking to present there and they don't get back to him. Uh, Okay, so basically CrimeCon and its whole vibe is sort of like echoing what we've seen in true crime as a whole, which is very much we trust the police, we trust the DA, the state narrative, all that, and truly not questioning the methods used. Right. If you like just search the CrimeCon Las Vegas lineup, there was a huge law enforcement presence. There were district attorneys. There were victims' rights advocates. Okay, and uh, we haven't even touched on victims' rights advocacy. Yeah, so this is something that we probably should talk about in this episode, and it's something that we talked to P.E. Moskowitz about. But basically in the 70s and 80s, serial killings were all over the news, and women weren't feeling heard by the police. They were kind of just being told, ironically, like you were saying earlier, like, hey, just be careful out there. But this totally valid anger about, you know, violence against women kind of spiraled into a conservative movement. Here's P.E. talking about it. The cause was kind of taken up by Ronald Reagan in his presidential run. And basically, he used it as a kind of fear-mongering tool that these victims' voices weren't being heard. And we have to be careful everywhere we turn and that it was time to ramp up the police and ramp up surveillance and ramp up jails and prisons because victims weren't being heard, essentially. So it got twisted into this weird thing where it was like, yes, it's true. Women's voices were not being heard and violence against women was not being taken seriously. And then that got twisted into let's build more prisons and give the police a higher budget than ever and all that. And, you know, as we can see from statistics today, we have more people in prison than ever and violence against women has not stopped so we went wrong somewhere so it would be easy to get totally freaked out if you're going to panels with a detective who worked on the night stalker case or you know listening to john benet's dad talk which these were two (laughs) things that happened there you could see people being like okay we need more policing we need harsher sentences And also, we should point out, it's contributing to this idea or maybe this exaggerated notion that white women are most at risk for violent crime. Yes. We talked to Lindsay Webb about this. White women are not the highest risk of being the victims of violent crime in our culture. They just aren't. I'm not saying that doesn't mean white women aren't at risk, but women of color, black women, black men, wildly more at risk for being the victims. Native American women, like Native American men, more at risk of being victims of violent crime than white women are. And that distorted idea, it will lead to distorted solutions, which we've seen time and time again. So again, you know, we're not shaming our consumption of true crime. I think I consume a lot of true crime, but I do think that the show, working on the show, has really made me reflect on my consumption With CrimeCon, for example, I didn't think about the outsized law enforcement perspective until I looked back. And I didn't know about junk science when I was there. But it's understanding that basically the information we're ingesting, it's distorted. It's not the full picture. True crime has a narrative problem. We want to tell a compelling story. We want a good guy and a bad guy. 
But sometimes the real world isn't that clear cut. And I think it's also, again, a narrative problem. Like, you know, the vast majority of crime of sexual violence is domestic abuse. It's family members doing horrible things to other family members. But you rarely hear stories like that on true crime because that would, I think, honestly be too frightening for people to acknowledge that the criminal might be in their home or might be someone they know. I mean, it is a hard reality to grasp. Instead, on true crime podcasts, criminals or abusers are hiding in the woods or waiting for you to leave your door unlocked. It allows people to distance themselves from what's actually true about crime and violence in our society and kind of place it on this figure of the other. Over the past couple of years, P.E. has seen a shift in the way Ashley and Britt talk about stories on Crime Junkie. It's actually been really interesting to watch them become a little more politically aware as the podcast has gone on from kind of going from the default perspective of true crime, which is like the police always know what they're doing and they're always good and they never mess up and only focusing on primarily white women to in the last year or two, I think they've been a little more like skeptical of like whether the cops always do a good job and they point out stories where queerness or transness or race affects the story in some ways. Being trans themselves, P.E. was impressed by how the hosts handled a trans person involved in one of their cases. I remember there was one where the murderer like later decided that they were trans and the way they handled the like pronoun usage and like not dead naming them and not using their old pronouns was really surprising to me, honestly, especially because it was like the bad person in the episode and not the victim. My Favorite Murder has done stories on the Central Park Five and missing Black woman Matrice Richardson. P.E., a big Dateline fan, has noticed the show start to question the police more. But there's still a cognitive dissonance with a lot of true crime. When they tell stories involving people of color, they might question the police. But when they cover a white victim, they go back to accepting the police. And the truth is, the real world is complicated. Systemic issues are complicated. And who knows if true crime is the genre to really pull back the curtain on it. Because, as we've discussed at the end of the day, it's here to entertain. I can see true crime getting a little more critical of the kind of systems they support to a point. That being said, I mean, you know, like Serial was one of the first really popular true crime podcasts, and it was about a wrongful conviction and about how badly cops mess things up. So I don't think that it's impossible to have media, even if it is true crime media, that shines a light on how these systems work. P.E.'s relationship with true crime remains complicated. They still find it compelling and critique it, and also find it cathartic. For me, just on a personal level, I started listening to true crime after a near-death experience. P.E. was part of anti-racist protests in Charlottesville in 2017 and was just 10 feet away when a white supremacist drove their car into the crowd. And I had PTSD and was feeling very scared about the world. And I think true crime allowed me to feel like there was a mirror up to myself of this is what it feels like to have something really horrible happen to you. And this is what grieving looks like. This is what it means to have your whole life changed by one event. 
It's also very valid as a trans person to be scared of violence. And there's not a lot of space to have those discussions. On shows like Crime Junkie and My Favorite Murder, it's talked about openly. I think that is kind of true crime at its best is when it gives people the space to express or to feel or to even acknowledge that they have grief from things like sexual violence or they have anger towards men or they have frustration about like how scary it is to be a woman or trans or whatever in this world. These stories might not be common. The white victim-centered story. But violence against women is common. Having space to acknowledge that is helpful. I think it's unfortunate that in order to do that, we have to present this very scary world and highlight the most uncommon version of these kinds of violence and kind of get scared of everything in the world around us because that kind of defeats the purpose of feeling these things if you're just then remaking yourself scared all the time. So here comes the part in the episode where I'm supposed to tell you what I feel about true crime. What's my verdict? Is true crime bad? To give a yes or no answer, that would be too easy. I think the problem with true crime is that it isn't true crime. It isn't the most common crimes, and it isn't the most common victims. The real world is sadly darker. Murders, rapes, assaults, they're more often committed by people you know. Your parents, your partners, your siblings, your friends. The people who are murdered aren't unassuming middle-aged white ladies. They're trans folk, black men, indigenous people. True crime is a Frankenstein world, a curiosity we've created. It's allowed us to put our fears into neat little boxes. There's the trusted victim, the valiant cop, the judge and jury that see the evidence and deliver justice. Everything is in its right place. It feels nice. But unfortunately, the real world, the true world where crime exists, well, it's a lot less neat and a lot more nuanced. This is why you felt so unsatisfied at the end of Serial when Sarah Koenig couldn't tell you if Adnan did it. It went against the common tropes of the genre. In the real world, there aren't clear answers. Did Adnan do it? Maybe. Did they have the evidence to convict him? Probably not. In this series, we've talked about how true crime treats its subjects as characters. How it dramatizes and twists real events in harmful ways. It creates a fantasy world dominated by white victimhood. All of it in service of entertaining us. Maybe we just need to be honest about it. Really, our true crime is a fantasy. It's fantasy crime. Spectacle True Crime is a production of Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's hosted by yours truly. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Liz Sanchez is our associate producer. Sound design by Hansdale Shee. 
Original music by Asha Ivanovich. Additional cues from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our fact checker is Stephen Crichton. Special thanks to Carla Green, Shara Morris, and Catherine St. Louis. I'm Mariah Smith, and this has been Spectacle True Crime. Thanks for listening.